Ladies and gentlemen, uh, may I welcome you all and thank you all for coming to what is the fourth uh, LSE annual Austrian history lecture. Uh, I invented this series about four years ago when I thought more deserved to be done about the history of Central Europe and British universities. And uh, we're on our fourth annual lecture tonight. Um, I have some apologies I have to uh, uh, tell you about to begin with. Uh, first of all, uh, the Austrian ambassador, uh, His Excellency uh, Emil Bricks, who gave a brilliant lecture uh, last year, uh, cannot unfortunately be here tonight, much as he'd like to be, because he's been stricken down by some unknown virus, which has more or less paralyzed him from the waist down. Uh, he's making good some progress, uh, and uh, we're hoping that it'll all be reversible, but he's in a wheelchair and, and can't be here tonight. So I hope you'll all consider him in your prayers, uh, and we'll look forward to a recovery, a full recovery. Uh, Peter Meikle, the Consul General, uh, unfortunately can't make it, and last but least, this all seems to be Austrian, uh, the Austrian Student Society uh, hosting the governor of the National Bank of Austria tonight uh, for a lecture and dinner and for some reason they seem to think a lecture by the governor of the National Bank of Austria would be more interesting than the one we are putting on this evening so I'm sorry about that but that's the message uh, I've got from them. Well with the apologies out of the way and there's a long list of uh, distinguished people who would like to have been here but can't but I can't read out all the names uh, I'd like now to go on to introduce tonight's guest speaker, uh, who is, of course, the very distinguished Professor Roy Bridge. I always look forward to seeing Roy, as I was saying to him, at least some friends. He always reminds me of Santa Claus. <laughs> Every time I see him, I think that Christmas has come early. So uh, it's always a particular pleasure to see his beaming features uh, in any room. But, of course, the reason why he's been selected is not because we want to hand out presents to the audience, but rather he is a very, very distinguished man. He's probably the most distinguished uh, historian of 19th century diplomacy, uh, especially when it comes to the origins and uh, the diplomacy of the First World War. Uh, because he's so distinguished, the Austrian government about a year ago, and I was there to witness it at the embassy, uh, bestowed on him uh, the Cross of Honour for Arts and Sciences. The Austrian government have given him the Cross of Honour for Arts and Sciences, first class which he absolutely deserves. Uh, his friends, including myself, gave him a festschrift, uh, the title of which was A Living Anachronism? Question <laughs> mark. Uh, now, this didn't refer to Roy in any sense at all. We don't see him as a living anachronism, Roy. It referred to the Habsburg monarchy, uh, and it referred to all the work you've done on the Habsburg monarchy, and uh, I had a num great number of, uh, I, I exclude my own, of interesting essays on that subject. Uh, Roy, of course, is the author of uh, a number of distinguished works, books, articles uh, on European and Austrian diplomacy. I don't want to list them all. His latest that's coming out, he wants me to, to boost, is the second edition of Bridge and Bullen, uh, standard work for university students called uh, The Great Powers in the European State System, 1814 to 1914. So if you don't possess a copy already, <laughs> run down to the bookshop and make sure that you do. 
Anyway, he doesn't want me to say too much about him. Uh, you'll know him from his works if you've got any interest in the Habsburg monarchy at all. So without more ado, may I ask Roy Bridge to give you our fourth annual LSE Austrian History Lecture on the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and England. Roy. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, for the kind words. <clears throat> Your Highnesses, ladies and gentlemen, <coughs> the material in my lecture this evening comes largely from unpublished sources in the official papers of the State Archives in London and Vienna, from collections of private papers, specifically those of Archduke Franz Ferdinand himself, with the kind permission of his grandson, the present Duke of Hohenberg, and perhaps most importantly, from the papers of Albert Count Mensdorf, or Mensdorf Puy Dietrichstein, this gentleman whom you see here, who was 20 years on the scene in London. As a Coburg, he was closely related to the British royal family. Queen Victoria wrote to him as Deine Troia Tante, and he was on intimate terms with Edward VII and even more with George V, who is his contemporary in age. He was in a junior position in the embassy in the 90s, but served as the main conduit of communications between the royal family and the embassy. And then chargé d'affaires, and after 1904, at Edward VII's request, Franz Joseph's ambassador in London. And for Mensdorf, the cultivation of what he liked to regard as a traditional friendship between the dual monarchy in England became really his life's mission. It wasn't always an easy task. Partly, really on account of his royal connections. This didn't merely make him the butt of snide remarks from envious colleagues who nicknamed him Royal Albert in a reference to Queen Victoria's yacht, but also the accusations of subservience to his British royal relatives, which tended to undermine his credibility in Vienna, though he was a very good reporter on English politics. This undermined his credibility in Vienna, especially as we'll see with people like Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Now to put these materials in something of a context for you, I ought to say something about Franz Ferdinand himself. There's certainly nothing in his family background, this was his family, Franz Ferdinand on the extreme left here, nothing in his family background to make him feel drawn towards England. On the contrary, his mother, was a daughter of King Bomba of Naples, whose kingdom had been destroyed by Garibaldi under British patronage. His much-loved stepmother, who brought him up from the age of eight, she's the one in the picture here, was the daughter of ex-King Miguel of Portugal, another victim of British liberal-inspired regime change. His very extensive fortune he acquired at the age of 12 from his childless cousin, the Duke of Modena, who died in exile in Vienna, another victim of Britain and the Risorgimento, who made Franz Ferdinand his sole heir on condition he added the name Este to the Habsburg family name, and henceforth he was Franz Ferdinando Habsburg Este. 
One might mention another casualty of the creation of the Kingdom of Italy, namely the Papal State. Especially as Franz Ferdinand was by upbringing an extremely pious Catholic. There were constant rumours of his supposed desire to restore the temporal power of the Pope, which of course would mean breaking up the Kingdom of Italy. And these were all recorded with grave disapproval in British diplomatic circles. As regards his education, one might mention that he was always rather weak in languages. He had good French and a little Italian, but he never learned English. This was always something of a barrier to his getting to know England. His children all learned English. You can see their letters in the excellent museum at Archdeton Castle along the Danube from Vienna, well worth a visit. But Franz Ferdinand never really did much with English. His tutors included an ex-minister of the Kingdom of, King of Hanover, who, who's lost his throne uh, after defeat by Prussia in 1866. And he imbued Franz Ferdinand with a strong sense of identity with the glorious past of the Austrian Habsburg dynasty and of the Catholic Church. Franz Ferdinand was especially keen on the history of the Counter-Reformation. And both he and his wife had links with militant Catholic bodies in Austria, such as the Catholic Schools Association, that was fighting against the anti-papal Los von Rome, free, Freedom from Rome movement, that was infiltrating the monarchy, encouraged by Protestant circles in Germany at the turn of the century. Well, the upshot of all this was, of course, that if you had an ingrained dislike of the Kingdom of Italy and its British patrons, he wasn't particularly close to Germany either. And in any case, he found the young Kaiser Wilhelm unpleasantly bumptious, especially as he liked to meddle with his unwanted advice in Austrian domestic politics. Atheistical Republican France, he positively detested. So it was Russia, although of course official Austrian policy was generally to work with Germany and Italy and England, against the Franco-Russian bloc, it was to Russia that Franz Ferdinand felt most drawn in his early years. His first state visit had been to St. Petersburg, where he represented Franz Joseph in 1891. And there he was not only very well received, but he developed a real liking for his hosts. And he remained convinced to the end of his life that war between Austria and Russia would be an absolute disaster for both empires. For example, we find him writing in 1897, behind the emperor's back, to the ambassador in Petersburg, another conservative clerical friend, Prince Liechtenstein, an alliance of three emperors, the maintenance of peace and the strengthening of the monarchical principle. These are my life's or the ideals. Whereas Franz Joseph's foreign minister, the Polish Count Golokowski, he said, wants war with Russia. And his fraternization with England, which he has staged, I consider exceedingly dangerous, or to call it by its right name, idiotic, because England is the most calculating, deceitful, and unreliable ally on earth. <laughs> As you can see, Franz Ferdinand was a man of strong likes and dislikes. And his personal experiences in the 90s did nothing to smooth out the rough edges. Since Crown Prince Rudolf's suicide, 
He was the heir to the throne after his father, who died in 1896, but Franz Joseph never publicly recognised and proclaimed him as such. And this insecurity about his position seems really to have irked him. All the more so when he fell seriously ill with TB and saw much of the political establishment rushing to pay court to his younger brother. A Hungarian newspaper even spoke with satisfaction of his impending demise. Well, Franz Ferdinand never forgave these people and the experience certainly deepened a misanthropic trait in his character. Once he told the Chief of Staff, Colin von Herzendorf, who was no softy, you hold everyone to be an angel by nature and you will be disappointed. I assume that everyone is a scoundrel and wait to be convinced otherwise. Then there was a the problem of his marriage. In the 1890s, there was a good deal of speculation about a royal marriage, possibly even, even an English or Anglo-Russian match. And in 1894, he paid his first visit to the British court, where, as he could be very charming if he wished, he had, according to Mensdorf, gone down very well with Queen Victoria, and especially with the Princess of Wales and her daughters, who otherwise are not very taken with foreign princes. But nothing really came of this, despite the long talks Mensdorf had with Queen Victoria's daughter-in-law. Franz Ferdinand had his own firm ideas about royal marriages. As he complained to a friend, when somebody in my position loves somebody, some trifle in the family tree is bound to be seized upon to make marriage impossible. So it comes about with us that man and wife are always related to each other 20 times over and the result is that half the children are idiots and epileptics. <laughs> By 1897 he'd fallen in love with a Czech countess, a lady in waiting to the Archduchess Isabella, and stubbornly insisted on marrying her in the face of the disapproval, this is the lady in question, the face of the disapproval of his imperial uncle and the court and most of the establishment and successive incumbents of the British Embassy too, almost invariably uh, disapproved of this marriage. No Habsburgs attended Franz Ferdinand's wedding, not even his brothers, and he had to pay a heavy price for his choice in the act of renunciation that he had to sign that laid down that his wife could never be Empress and any children they had would be excluded from the succession. At court, his wife was subject to humiliations for years. She couldn't appear together with her husband at court functions. She couldn't sit in the imperial box at the opera. In 1901, she couldn't appear at a luncheon for a visiting German crown prince in the Belvedere Palace, even though she was the lady of the house. And as late as 1908, Franz Joseph forbade her to join Franz Ferdinand for his Diamond Jubilee celebrations in the Tyrol, as it was an official occasion. One reason why Franz Ferdinand was looking forward so much to going to Sarajevo in 1914 was that he could go in his capacity as Inspector General of the Army and not as an Archduke and this meant that his wife was able to take her place by his side, ironically enough, in the fatal car. As far as the couple themselves were concerned, the marriage was a very happy one. Here you see them in the Belvedere, nowadays an art museum, but in those days a very livable in uh, palace that they decorated uh, very elegantly. 
Franz, Joseph, Franz Ferdinand was devoted to his wife and children and preferred their company to any other. And given his dislike for the ceremonial occasions, which always humiliated his wife, he preferred to live largely in his country houses, avoiding Vienna and the court. Well, he's a man of the countryside. Here you see him at ease in the parks of one of his country houses. Another reason for preferring life in the country was his grand passion, hunting. Now, this was not the patient stalking of chamois in the mountains that Franz Joseph engaged in, but shooting in the fashionable style of those days in a grand battue, the mass slaughter of animals driven in front of the guns. Franz Joseph rather disapproved of this. He told Count Kielsmansek, for instance, Recently, the Archduke shot a few hundred in the Leinzer Deer Park. Incredible. These are domestic animals after all. Do you call that sportsmanlike? Well, certainly, Franz Ferdinand was an extremely good shot. It's related on one occasion when 13 stags were driven across his guns. In less than a minute, he'd shot them all dead. Estimates vary as to his total bag in his lifetime between 300,000 and half a million. In 1892-3, he went on a world cruise and had a real field day. <laughs> he went via Egypt, you see him here, <laughs> to India, the Far East, Australia and Japan. Here you see shooting an elephant. <laughs> He managed also a tiger. And in Australia, he had all sorts of exotic creatures, some of them hardly known at his disposal. Kangaroos, wallabies. He even shot a duck-billed platypus out of the water. <laughs> now, to some people these days, this all seems very deplorable. <coughs> An Australian historian, a modern Australian historian, has written a little, a little article about Franz Ferdinand's trip to Australia in 1892. And it's accompanied by this rather fierce cartoon showing him in Australia shooting these Australian animals. And this historian remarks that in June 1914, the Archduke got some of his own medicine. This is a remark that Rebecca West had made 40 years before in Black Lamb and White and Grey Falcon. But at the time, it was perfectly normal in the international hunting fraternity and was a passion shared by most of the crowned heads of Europe, especially George V, and it was certainly an important element in Franz Ferdinand's friendship with the king in his last years. The world trip of 1892-3 also had some impact on the Archduke's political development. It confirmed his belief in monarchical government, what he saw in the United States, deepened his scepticism about democracy and the cruder aspects of capitalism. He was impressed by the power of the British Empire and became convinced of the importance of sea power if a state was to hold its place in the modern world. At home, he became the leading enthusiast for the Navy and its dreadnought program after 1909. After all, these dreadnoughts were largely being built against the detested Italy. And he often appeared in naval uniform. Franz Joseph never appeared in naval uniform. Franz Ferdinand liked to do so. 
There may have been an element of jealousy, too, in his criticism of the way the British pushed lesser nations around, Egypt, the Boers, and so on. In the diplomatic battle in Cairo, for instance, Austria and her allies were supporting the British occupation of Egypt as a check on France and Russia, and voting in the International Control Commission there for spending Egyptian revenues on military expeditions to extend British control. But when Franz Ferdinand went to Egypt to convalesce for a couple of months in 1896, the Austrian minister complained that he spent all of his time with Britain's opponents, notably the local ruler, the Khedive, who had, after all, been educated at the Theresianum in Vienna, criticizing our foreign policy in outspokenly anti-English terms. He described the latest British expedition as a fresh rape of Egypt by England and he denounced Austria's cooperation with England, who is ruining our trade in East Asia and who is extending her rule by treachery and force. You can imagine, the minister said, how this would please the Khedive, for whom our pro-English policy has always been a thorn in the eye. Now, although he dutifully represented France Joseph at Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee celebrations and at her funeral in 1901, I have not found anything in the archives about either of these two little trips, he was still very much at odds with his uncle regarding England. Franz Joseph had an enormous respect for Queen Victoria. He ordered double normal court mourning when she died. In the Boer War, he authorised the sale of horses for the British in South Africa and remarked openly at a ball that dans cette guerre je suis complètement anglais. For this he was denounced in the Vienna Parliament. Most of his subjects were united, the British ambassador lamented, in their dislike of liberal Protestant England. And the Archduke was very much in line with these people, and with pro-Boer sentiment all over the continent, except for in England's old friends in Italy and Hungary. Certainly it wasn't with any enthusiasm that he contemplated the prospect of yet another long and tiring journey to London for Edward VII's coronation in 1902. Now this trip, generated a good deal of correspondence with Mensdorf, starting with a protest from the Archduke when he learned that the scheduled celebrations, which included not only the coronation but a gala theatre performance and a garden party, well spread out, kept him away from his family for 11 days. I must say, he wrote to Mensdorf, I'm staggered by the programme. Apart from the fact that I find it between you and me a scandal that during a war, the Boer War was still going on, that during a war where thousands of sons of the empire are bleeding to death for the stake of a stock exchange speculation and the armies getting one defeat after another, they should be putting on celebration after celebration for weeks. It shows a really English lack of consideration to keep the foreign princes in London for 11 days with dinners and similar entertainments and shorten or ruin their summer holidays. But when he suggested that he might be able to come home early and skip the garden party, Mensdorf stressed how important it was he should stay to the end. It was already bad enough that Austria, unlike all other states, he said, was not sending a ship to the naval review. This would leave the Archduke as Franz Josef's sole representative at a moment when the eyes of all the world will be on London. In the end, the Austrians did send a ship, but the Archduke still complained about the programme. At the garden party, there's actually nothing for us to do, 
nor do I find it very jolly to have to drive with the king through the streets of London when he's just showing himself to his, his people and we act as retainers. Still, as he would have to stay so long in what was after all the biggest metropolis in Europe, he planned at least to do some shopping. Menstorf had asked him to let him know in good time his requirements, as London will be so crowded and the traffic in the streets so difficult. And Franz Ferdinand took him up on this. As you will not be an expert, he writes to the bachelor ambassador, as you will not be an expert about many things, such as children's hats, toys, etc., I ask you to inquire of ladies as to the best shops. I need, above all, hats and coats for my daughter, toys and especially picture books, motor rugs for summer and winter, pretty dinner service for the country, wash basins for the country house, porcelain or earthenware, comfortable furniture, clocks for the house and the car, and ping-pongs, table tennis, uh, for indoors and the garden. Well, in the event, on the day after he arrived in London, before one ping-pong ball could be bought, the king was diagnosed with appendicitis, the coronation was postponed, and Franz Ferdinand sped homeward on the very next day. When the Prince of Wales told the king he had gone, Edward exclaimed, Good heavens, I wanted to give the Archduke the garter. And he told Mensor that he hoped the Archduke would do him the pleasure of coming to the postponed coronation so that he could give him the garter then. This suggestion, the Archduke said, had given him a fright. It really was too much to ask the foreign non-related princes to undertake the long, tiring journey again. And he was relieved when the king settled for a quick, quiet coronation with no Indians, colonials or foreign princes and sent his good, good cousin, the garter, through the ambassador. Certainly, as far as Edward VII was concerned, his rare minutes show that he was genuinely well disposed towards the Archduke. On the news that Franz Ferdinand had started to give informal luncheons for the diplomatic corps at which his wife could take her place as lady of the house, he writes, this is very satisfactory. On Franz Joseph's granting her the title Serene Highness, this must be very gratifying to the Archduke and the Princess. According to the Kaiser, when he met Edward at Kronberg in 1906, the two of them were agreed on at least one thing that if the future Emperor of Austria raised his wife to the dignity of Empress, the other sovereigns of Europe should recognise her as such. And the British ambassador in Vienna as well later recalled that King Edward told me he would raise no difficulties about recognition. Well, this goodwill was not reciprocated, as we'll see, as the Archduke drew closer to the Kaiser with his paranoia about Edward VII's anti-German intrigues, the king became a bête noire for Franz Ferdinand too. The Prince of Wales, later George V, was a very different case. In 1906, for example, the Austrian Trade Ministry organised at great expense an exhibition in London to publicise what it called the country of Austria up to the present so little known to British travellers and tourists. When the Prince of Wales agreed to accept the patronage of this exhibition, the Archduke expressly told Menstorf to thank him. And he had already himself, he said, found the Prince very likeable with his very modest, friendly personality. But there was no real political significance in this. The Archduke was still very sceptical about the British and their ways. <clears throat> he hadn't wanted himself to take on the patronage because he thought, as he said, the advantages that were accrued to Austrian industry are not proportionate to the colossal expense. 
For the English are far too practical people and absolutely without scruple as to the means they employ to thwart anything that could offer the least competition to their industry. Well, so much for royalty. At lower levels, the British establishment, including a whole succession of ambassadors, four out of five of them, were anything but taken with the Archduke. According to Sir Horace Rumbold in 1900, his marriage causes serious concern to the much-tried emperor and is damaging to the best interests and prestige of the dynasty. As for his political views, it is to be feared that a strong reactionary regime resting on the church and army may be the ideal of the newly married couple. His successor, Sir Francis Plunkett, stressed his hostility to the Hungarians, which was heartily reciprocated in Budapest, where the ambassador found nothing but dislike and suspicion more or less openly expressed. And according to a special report by his number two in the middle of the World War, there seems to be little doubt that at present at any rate, he's far from being animated by the same friendly disposition towards us which His Majesty the Emperor has constantly given expression to. According to a third, Sir George Goshen, the Archduke was, in his own house, a most charming and agreeable host. He talks exceedingly well and gives the impression of a cultivated and well-read man of the world. Outside the Belvedere, he gives a very different impression, and one would put him down as the most morose and unapproachable personage in the world. His successor, Fairfax Cartwright, found that no two people seemed to agree about the Archduke, and he was certainly changeable. He may be fixed in his dislike of the Hungarians, but whereas, recent, whereas earlier he had expressed violent antipathy for the Kaiser, now he was loud in his praise of the German Emperor. And as the British archives show, the Foreign Office establishment in London had little confidence in or sympathy for the Archduke and his plans. The Archduke is preparing a mass of difficulties for himself in the future by taking up a strong anti-Magyar line. His dislike of the Hungarians bodes ill for the future welfare of the dual monarchy, and according to the British consul in Budapest, if he decided to proceed against them, we are then on the threshold of the most serious events since 1848 and 1849. The permanent undersecretary wrote, summing it up, it looks as though we may expect fireworks when he comes to the throne. Well, these negative views fit in with something of a cooling in Anglo-Austrian relations generally in the middle years of the decade. On the one hand, Great Britain was drawing closer to France and Russia and away from Germany, the naval rival. On the other, Franz Ferdinand was drawing closer to William II. He was disillusioned now with the Tsar, but encouraged by the Kaiser, he tended to blame English intrigues for leading Russia astray. The, Bosnian, the big Bosnian crisis of 1908-9 was really an Austro-Russian row, but William II and Franz Ferdinand both agreed that England was behind it. For instance, William wrote to his Austrian crony in December 1908, The crux of the situation lies in a certain maritime power, about which we have talked so often, and about whose attitude we are both in complete agreement. She is pursuing quite a cynical and ruthless vendetta against our two countries in every corner of the world. Her aim is a great continental war so as to fish in troubled waters and weaken us all. The British chargé d'affaires picked up the news, admittedly from a Russian contact, 
that the other day the Archduke Franz Ferdinand gave vent to some very venomous anti-British sentiments which were interspersed with repeated allusions to der falsche Eduard as the real disturber of the European peace. The charge sent, sent this back to London as the utterances which fall from that sphinx-like Archduke seldom permeate beyond the walls of the Belvedere Palace where he silently waits his day. Well, for a time in this situation, Mensdorf's position in London became distinctly uncomfortable. He was accused of being in the pocket of Edward VII, of failing to put the Austrian case about Bosnia forcefully enough as his duty was as ambassador. Erenthal told him what this duty was and rebuked him. One has to tread on people's toes, he said. And as Menstorf noted in his diary, everybody in Vienna is furiously anglophobe, naturally Archduke Franz Ferdinand in the lead. Menstorf's brother-in-law sent him a copy of the Reichspost that was widely regarded as Franz Ferdinand's paper, lamenting that at this critical moment the London Embassy should be in the charge of a person who appears to be completely at sea with regard to what is really expected of him. And he told the king that his position was in jeopardy. Ironically enough, at the same time, Erenthal was convinced that Edward VII was manoeuvring to replace him as foreign minister by his relative and slave, Mensdorf. In the end, of course, the crisis passed away with a German-Austrian victory as Russia backed down and William could congratulate Franz Ferdinand. The cooking up of Entente across the Channel has led to nothing as France and Russia had shrunk from the war that one of the parties was so passionately desired, a party that would have been the only gainer from the conflict. The result, rather a hangover, and Austria is building dreadnoughts too, apparently a quite unexpected and very disturbing result for people over there. One of the myths, before we leave this, about the Bosnian crisis, is that it marks the end of the old friendship between France Joseph and Edward VII. After this, they never met again, and so on, you keep finding in the books. Well, it's true that in 1909, when the crisis was barely over, Mensdorf was unable to arrange for a visit by Edward VII in Marienbad to Franz Joseph in Ischl. These visits had become an annual event in recent years. The stumbling block in this case was that after the recent crisis, both foreign offices stood on their dignity. The British demanded an invitation to Ischl from Franz Joseph, the Austrians insisted that the king should ask to be received, and beyond this they never got, so no visit took place. Now this certainly suited Franz Ferdinand. He congratulated Ehrenthal, the foreign minister. Brilliant, the way in which you handled fat Eddie and his much-loved cousin and friend Albert, who also calls himself Austrian ambassador in his free time, regarding the visit to Ischl. Great, I was over the moon about it. And Erenthal, in turn, thanked the Archduke for his appreciative words, which are a great pleasure, and also took a swipe at Mensdorf. Prince Karl Kinski, he said, an old friend of Edward VII, since he had won the Grand National on his own horse in 1885, had recently met the king at, Isch at Marienbad and told him what he thought of the crisis. And his language to King Edward was at any rate different from that of the ambassador in London. But although it's true that the two monarchs never met again after the Bosnian crisis, one shouldn't make too much of this. While Franz Ferdinand was denouncing the Falsche Eduard, Franz Joseph was repeatedly telling his shooting comp companions 
that the king was a nice gentleman. And negotiations for a meeting in 1910 were underway when the king died in May of that year. Unlike his imperial uncle, of course, Franz Ferdinand was a great hater. There's no evidence that he shared the distress of those of the old school, like Franz Joseph and Prince Kinski, at the king's death. Or that he was in a more conciliatory mood when he had to represent the emperor at the king's funeral. Here, matters were complicated by the archduke's idea that his wife should follow him to London and they could look around a bit. She would come incognito. Now, as Kinski, who was delegated to accompany the Archduke, warned Mensdorf, the Archduke, he said, had had the confounded idea of bringing Sofal and to stay a few days afterwards to see some gardens and country houses. But the owner was not to be at home or entertain him. He will sneak around as a tourist. I hope to talk him out of combining this pleasure trip with Sofal, with his mission of mourning. But if I can't, we must try to make it as tactless as possible. Meanwhile, the British ambassador in Vienna was urging that it was most desirable for our future relations with this country that every civility should be shown to the Duchess at, at, by our court. The Archduke is most touchy on this subject. Could the King invite her to, the, to accompany the Archduke to the funeral and give her a place in the chapel? She was specially invited to Berlin last year. The British court thought not. Now, this is not because of any stuffy attitude over the Duchess's status, as Franz Ferdinand's biographers generally state. On the contrary, the archives show that as the king saw it, the problem was that he hadn't invited any foreign princes, whatever, even closer related ones, to the funeral. So he could hardly make an exception for the Duchess. The Dowager Empress of Russia, Queen Alexandra's sister, was the only one. On the other hand, if she came to London, even incognito, he felt he couldn't be so discourteous as to ignore her presence in the capital. So as Mensorf explained, it was precisely out of respect for the Duchess that the King was asking Franz Ferdinand to think again. In the end, the Archduke complied, though according to Mensdorf's diary, naturally he is furious. Our people do not have the talent for handling things practically and simply. Well, on this occasion, unlike his previous visits, Franz Ferdinand wrote a long report to Franz Joseph about the funeral of his old friend. This has been published in part, I'll not go into detail about that, for instance, comments on the foreign rulers he met at the dinner at Buckingham Palace. Ferdinand of Bulgaria, a thoroughly unprincipled, false and totally unreliable person. The Crown Prince of Serbia, who looks like a shady gypsy. <laughs> and the two Republicans, Bichon and Roosevelt, who distinguished themselves by their striking lack of court manners. And Roosevelt especially was extraordinarily pushy, or as we would say, impudent. <laughs> Most of the report, however, hasn't been published before today, so you're hearing this for the first time. We've all seen films and photographs of the funeral of Edward VII. It all looks very orderly and well-managed. But this report, I think, throws some interesting new light on what it was actually like to be at the centre of events and on some of the sociological aspects of the, coronet, of the funeral and especially an outsider's view of the new ceremonial of the British monarchy. This was an invention of Lord Isha in the early years of the century in an attempt to boost the prestige of the monarchy after Queen Victoria's rather widowy last years. And this 
ceremonial has continued to serve the monarchy well ever since. But it really was quite new. Queen Victoria's coronation had been a real shambles. The Archduke writes that he's very favourably impressed by the accommodation Mensdorff had found for him. Apsley House, the London residence of the Duke of Wellington, with its associations with the Anglo-Austrian alliance in the Napoleonic Wars. As he told his uncle, magnificent paintings and numerous souvenirs of the Emperor Francis and the Imperial Army adorned this elegant house. The dinner at Buckingham Palace before the funeral, on the evening of the funeral, was also, contrary to the usual English custom, excellent, and the atmosphere very cheerful. But the next day, he complained, a great heat fell over London, which was all the more unpleasant as the funeral started at nine o'clock and we did not get back to London until six. It was extraordinarily strenuous and tiring, and I must say I thought it an imposition bordering on the inconsiderate to ask us to ride for three hours at walking pace through the sun-baked streets of London as a guard of honour and then to act as mourners on foot by train and by coach until six in the evening. Given the great heat and the bad air that prevailed during the ceremonies, 2,800 people fainted or had to be taken away suffering from heat stroke, the Arctic said. As for the troops, some 30,000 men turned out, including the extremely grotesque yeomanry. The regular soldiers made a bet much better impression on me than those at the time of Queen Victoria's funeral. The ceremony, he writes, was arranged with colossal pomp and magnificence and presented an extremely colourful picture, more like a coronation or a triumphal procession than a funeral. Everything was shining in gold, silver, purple and scarlet and the court officials and attendants were not in mourning but in gala uniforms. The squadron of royalties, drawn up in threes, was also an interesting spectacle. The attention of spectators, who numbered millions, was concentrated chiefly on King George and Kaiser Wilhelm, who, with a field marshal's staff in his hand, sat motionless on a grey. The two queens, the Empress of Russia and the other ladies, rode behind us princes in red gala coaches. I must mention a droll detail that the king's favourite dog, a wild-haired terrier followed the coffin, as did the king's horse with the king's boots strapped to the saddle upside down, three exclamation marks. Frightfully hot was the march on foot up the steep road in Windsor, and very long the service in the small, totally airtight chapel where there were no seats and we had to stand all the time. The end was a luncheon at small tables attended by all the royalty and the ladies. I sat between the delightful and charming Princess Patricia of Connaught and Victoria, the late King's daughter. As the latter cannot speak either French or German, our conversation was minimal. <laughs> Afterwards, all the delegations were presented, everybody said goodbye, and we returned to London. Politically, however, there was no improvement. When he discussed the Archduke visit with Ehrenthal, Cartwright mentioned that, the, mentioned that the impression prevailed in the press and other circles that Franz Ferdinand had but little sympathy for England. And Ehrenthal said he knew this and it caused him much worry. The summer of 1911, things didn't really get much better. Cartwright was relieved when 
the nephew of Karl, the, of Prince Ferdinand, the next emperor of Karl, the Archduke Charles, a bright youth, was sent to the coronation of George V. Rather than Franz Ferdinand, who was sure would have been in a bad mood, he is said to suffer from veritable accès de fureur, during which he appears to be almost out of his mind. The same summer, of course, saw the Agadir crisis, when Franz Ferdinand also took the German side and blamed his uncle's government for its tardy support of Germany. In England, the officials were still very wary of Franz Ferdinand. They looked rather askance at his frequent visits to his mighty and much-admired friend, the Kaiser. Five in the year 1909 alone. And on a report of March 1911 that Franz Ferdinand was going to Berlin again to repay William II's last state visit to Vienna, the Undersecretary Crow simply minuted, the Archduke ought to have a season ticket. <laughs> With the outbreak of war between Italy and Turkey in September, which gradually spread to involve the whole of Europe by the summer of 1914. The uh, Italo-Ottoman War, the war between Italy and Turkey, roused the enemies of Italy and Austria to fever pitch. They demanded a preemptive strike to knock Italy down before she became troublesome and so on. And Ehrenthal managed to get Franz Joseph to dismiss the chief of staff, Conrad von Herzendorf, who talked in this way, but he couldn't do anything against about other Italophobes, such as Franz Ferdinand. And people in Britain were certainly very apprehensive about him. Permanent Undersecretary Arthur Nicholson found it, he said, most strange that anyone with common sense could dream of re-establishing the temporal power of the Pope. This was only a rumour. And it all makes one still more desirous that the Emperor's life may be prolonged, if possible, for several years to come. I am afraid the situation in Southeast Europe and Austria-Hungary generally will become an exceedingly anxious and unsettled one when a change occurs on the throne. Nicholson regretted the death of Ehrenthal in February 1912 as he was able to restrain the influence of the Archduke and he doubted whether his successor Berchtold, although charming and very well disposed towards this country, would be strong enough to do so. Even the king had his doubts. He noted that Austria's relations with Italy were actually improving under Berchtold, but he reminded Mensdorf that if FF, that's Franz Ferdinand, had it all his own way, it would not be like that. When in respect to the king, matters soon improved, when in May 1912, the Archduke and his wife paid a private visit to their friends, the Duke and Duchess of Portland, at Welbeck Abbey. Oh, sorry, wrong way. That is the Duchess of Portland, painted by Sargent. She lived on till the 1950s, and the present uh, Duke of Hornberg, when he happened to be in England on holiday once, decided to turn up at Welbeck, and uh, she gave him a very hearty welcome, he tells me. Her husband, the Duke of Portland, he's more Franz Ferdinand's type, as you can see. Uh, <laughs> that is Welbeck Abbey, quite a splendid place to stay. Uh, Lord Ripon, another frequent guest and friend of the Archduke, reputed to be the best shot in England. And here's a picture of them at Welbeck. Uh, the Archduke is here. And his wife on the other side of the Duchess. When they got back from Welbeck to London, Mensdorf proposed they should let the King know they were there. And when they agreed to this, 
he immediately tore off to the palace and saw the royal secretary, Ponsonby. The result was the Archduke and his wife were invited to luncheon with the king, the queen and their daughter, Princess Mary, and they returned enchanted. The Archduke told Mensdorf he found it was so easy to talk to King George as they had so many interests and likes and dislikes in common. It was so gemütlich. The king and I understand each other so well. And Mensdorf wrote triumphantly to Vienna that this was a result that is not without importance, one that I have longed for for years and which I once thought would be impossible to realise. The king has often said to me that he liked the Archduke. I like Franz Ferdinand, though I know they say he doesn't like England. And the king asked them to come back to England often. Well, on this occasion, they stayed on in the Ritz for another week. As the Archduke hardly knew London, apart from ceremonial occasions, they spent a lot of time shopping and visiting the great horticultural exhibition. Uh, this had moved for the first time to Chelsea and became in 1913, and then onwards, the Chelsea Flower Show. According to Mensdorf, this was the finest and most magnificent there has ever been. Well, it doesn't look to our standards, <laughs> by modern standards, all that fine and exhibition. But here you see Franz Ferdinand and his wife in civilian clothes uh, visiting it. They also visited the Wallace Collection, had excellent dinners at the embassy where they praised Mensdorf's cook. The Portlands were also invited and Mensdorf took everybody to the Victoria Palace that had just opened in that summer uh, where Pavlova, uh, who stands on top of the Victoria Palace, uh, was dancing. And the Archduke went home delighted with everything and in the rosiest of humours touch wood which may result in softening his view of England. When the ambassador met his royal cousins at the Derby in June, the king told him what a pleasure it had been to see the Archduke again, whom he has always liked. And the Duchess had completely captivated both the king and the queen. And they both said, she's quite charming and we liked her so much. In Vienna, the ambassador learned from the Archduke's friends that he returned from his visit to England in the best of humours and delighted with the way in which he is received. He says that he has never seen England before under such pleasant auspices and that the charms of England are quite a revelation to him. He speaks in the highest terms of the King and Queen. Politically, things were a bit more muted. When the Balkan Wars broke out in October, uh, the Archduke's suspicions of the British machinations revived it was to be hoped, he told Berthold, that this storm will blow over and that we do not need to intervene actively. Nothing will come of that. He didn't want a war with Russia. And it would only cost an immense sum of money. Incidentally, he writes, it's always the English who are the troublemakers who are trying to force us into a difficult position down there. Well, in the event, his fears weren't realised. Thanks partly to an informal ambassadorial conference in London under Grey that worked for most of a year, the great powers managed to avoid coming to blows over the Balkan Wars. And the new map they drew of the Balkans took account of the Archduke's chief preoccupations by creating a new Albanian state to save his Catholic Albanian protégés from Serbian expansionists. And even a second war between the Balkan states left the Archduke on the whole pleased to see the defeat of his old enemy Ferdinand. So all this tended to make him rather less paranoid about the British plots by the summer of 1913. And indeed, the last year of his life saw a real improvement in relations between Franz Ferdinand and the British on both sides. It started in the summer of 1913 when Mensdorf mentioned to the king 
that the Archduke and his wife were planning to go to Welbeck again at the end of November for the shooting. And at this, the king told his cousin to invite the Archduke to shoot at Windsor in the preceding week. And to emphasize to them that the shooting at Windsor is very good and your Imperial Highness could reckon on a bag of at least a thousand on all four days. <laughs> it will be a private visit, the other guests being personal friends of the King and Queen. The Archduke accepted this with alacrity, that this form of invitation to beautiful England and this form of meeting the King and Queen just suits me, and so we can spend agreeable, gemütlichen hours together and learn and see more than on official occasions. For as you know, these official occasions with dinners, toasts, receptions, theatre, etc., etc., where one becomes half sick and rushed to death, are a horror for me, and I only undertake them when duty demands. Informal visits like this are much more beneficial for relations between rulers and princes than these frightful standard visits with their nerve and health-shattering programs. The king has done just the right thing, and I'm especially grateful. On the political front, He'd been reading Mensdorf's reports from the London Ambassadors Conference. It must have been an eventful, if difficult, job. Thank God, and also thanks to your energetic cooperation, the monarchy has come off well. Quite a change from the scathing criticisms he uttered about Mensdorf during the Bosnian crisis. And as Mensdorf's diary shows, the visit was a great success. He received the Archducal party on 15th on Saturday, 15 November, established them in the Ritz, where they usually stayed. Next day, he gave a dinner party at the embassy for them and the visiting Russian Grand Duchess Maria Pavlovna and Boris, the Rippons and Prince Kinsky, where Benstorff writes, I had arranged for music and we danced, including the Archduke, so it was not stiff and boring. On Monday, they went to Windsor. The king had invited no royal princesses, so could take the Duchess into dinner every evening, and as Mensor said, no difficulties arose, and the Duchess was a great success with everybody. The guests included not only the sovereign's aristocratic friends, but the first of two batches of political figures, which eventually included the Prime Minister, Foreign Secretary Gray, the Secretary of State for India, Lord Rosebery, Lord Lansdowne, the Permanent Under Secretary of the Foreign Office, Arthur Nicholson, and the new ambassador who was to go to Vienna, Sir Maurice de Bunsen. Mensdorf's diary noted that the Archduke was very amiable after dinner in French, of Französisch, and endlessly friendly to everybody, especially to the Conservatives and the Lansdowns, whom he remembered from his trip to India, when Lord Lansdowne was Viceroy, he'd arranged the excellent shooting there. <laughs> well, it's true, as Mensdorf recorded, the weather was bad for the shoot, but the Archduke was satisfied and shot well. The Duchess was enchanted with the treatment she'd received, and everything was going well without a hitch, touch wood. Perhaps the least successful aspect, according to Mensdorf's report to Count Berthold in Vienna, was the Archduke's conversation with Sir Edward Grey, Foreign Secretary, remarkably enough, who speaks French with difficulty and actually only understands when one says everything slowly and clearly. As the Archduke speaks fairly fast, most of what he said was hardly understood, if at all. On the other hand, he'd been very gracious to other Foreign Office people who could speak French. The new Ambassador de Bunsen, who is coming to Vienna full of enthusiasm, I think he'll suit you, that's Berkshold, and support your desire to improve relations with England. And to Sir Arthur Nicholson, who until now had been one of the Archduke's more jaundiced critics, 
uh, the Archduke had been very friendly and Nicholson in turn had told Mensdorf afterwards what an extremely nice man your Archduke is. From Windsor Mensdorf went with the Archduke to Welbeck where the guests included Lord Roberts and Arthur Balfour and according to Mensdorf's diary he was also enchanted by Chatsworth where he was invited to luncheon and even more if possible by Hardwick. In short, he was, Mentorf wrote in his diary, in the rosiest mood, delighted with everything and charming to everybody. I just think, if only he could be always be like this at home, he would <laughs> conquer the hearts of the Hungarians and anybody else. In Vienna, Bertolt confirmed that the Archduke's visit had gone off well. The Archduke, he said, partly owing to his ignorance of the language, had never before felt that he was really in touch with England. But he was getting over that feeling and was evidently enchanted by the warmth of the reception and entertainment given him by their majesties and others. Now whether all this might have heralded a revival of the traditional friendship between Britain and Austria-Hungary, we shall never know. Just seven months later came the shots at Sarajevo. Menstorf was overwhelmed with messages of sympathy. The king came unannounced to the embassy to express his grief. His private secretary, Knowles, told Mensdorf he hoped they will not give the murderers a prolonged trial, as doing so would only give them the opportunity of indulging their vanity. Lady Paget wrote, What an awful, hideous tragedy. I have thought of nothing else since I read of it. I cannot get it out of my mind. In common with nearly everybody in the world, my heart goes out in sympathy with your emperor, who seems indeed to be spared nothing. Such horrible wickedness is beyond imagination. Menstorff was appreciative as he reminded Lansdowne, the late Archduke left England last autumn as a convinced friend and admirer of this country. People in Serbia should be told that the whole civilized world is unanimous in its condemnation of the horrid murder. And in response, Lansdowne got the editor of the Times to draw attention to the, well, the attitude of the Serbians and the dangerous situation which is consequently arising. Menstorff was also careful to remind Gray of how the Archduke, who has now fallen victim to this abominable, brutal and stupid murder, was so happy when he visited England last November. The personal impression he received here had increased his appreciation of Englishmen and his admiration of England and I rejoiced to see him become more and more a sincere friend of this country. Gray was sympathetic. You will know how much we all feel for your emperor and for the shock and grief which he must suffer. His life is so bound up with the peace of Europe that I dread anything that must try his strength. It is less than a year since many of us saw the Archduke and his wife enjoying their visit to Windsor and seeming to be so happy here, and this too quickens our sympathy. But political facts were decisive. As Gray said, if Austria-Hungary could make war on Serbia and satisfy Russia, well and good, I could take a holiday tomorrow. But if not, the consequences would be incalculable. Well, by the 12th of August, of course, the incalculable had occurred, and Britain and Austria-Hungary went to war for the first and last time. The friends of Austria in England were utterly dismayed. Tory MP Claude Hay wrote to Mensdorf of his unbounded admiration for your emperor. The fools of the press here have never taught the public what are the facts as to Austria's long sufferance and generosity towards the Schweinerei of Serbia, and now the whole case of Austria is lost in the general war. 
And George V wrote to his cousin, My dear Albert, it is a great grief to the Queen and myself that you're going to leave England. To welcome you back when these terrible times have passed and peace once more reigns in Europe is the earnest prayer of your affectionate cousins, George and Mary. Well, where does this leave us? The archive material does, a lot, does allow us to get a more nuanced picture of the Archduke than that given by his chief biographer, Margotti, who simply says his sympathies with Great Britain were deep and genuine. And cites his alleged Margotti cites his alleged admiration for Anglo-Saxon positivism, energy, and respect for law and order. But what we've heard from Franz Ferdinand wouldn't suggest his unqualified approval of any of these. The archive and the literature also give us a picture of a man who, in his early years, was drawn to Russia politically, had little time for England, which he only knew from ceremonial occasions, and which he did not particularly admire. Look at his rather sardonic account of the king's funeral, and during the Bosnian crisis had been actually extremely hostile to England and to the king personally. But they also document the change that came over his view of England, starting with the king in 1912 and taking in the whole of the ruling elite by 1913. Partly this was an aspect of the political detente between Britain and Austria over the Balkan crisis in which Berchtold had made a real effort to work with the British-led concert. Partly, it was simply that Franz Ferdinand and George V hit it off on a personal level, especially in their shared passion for the mass slaughter of animals. <laughs> but the personal was not unimportant in the case of someone so passionate as Franz Ferdinand. Already as heir apparent, Franz Ferdinand had made his mark and come to count for something in the policy debate in Vienna, as the chief advocate of the need to avoid war with Russia. And what might he have counted for if he had lived to become emperor, equipped with his new benign view of beautiful England? After all, it's the emperor who had the final word in determining Austrian policy. But this takes us into the realm of the counterfactual. What we do know, we know, is that Franz Ferdinand, when Franz Ferdinand set off for Sarajevo, Berchtold had on his writing table, awaiting his signature, a dispatch to Berlin, the Macheco Memorandum, setting out an elaborate plan for restoring Austria's Balkan position, not by war, but by diplomacy. We also know that the assassination silenced the strongest voice for peace in the divided councils of Vienna, and that the impact of the assassination on the remaining decision-makers was to swing them all, apart from the Hungarian Prime Minister Tissa, to swing them all in to favour of a solution by war. And the upshot of this we all know. Whether things might have gone differently if in June 1914 that driver hadn't taken the wrong turning that brought the archducal pair face to face with their murderer and they had come back from Sarajevo safe and sound and the archduke had lived to reign, whether then the only guns that might be heard firing in the next few years might have been not those of the, on the San and the Somme but in places like Windsor and Welbeck that we shall never know thank you
Well, Roy, thanks very much for bringing an assassinated Archduke very much back to life. Uh, that was marvellous, and uh, I'm sure we'll all have uh, comments or questions. Um, oh, yes, I see my two students have decided to come down with microphones ready. Could one have one aisle and one the other? Um, before I ask members of the audience to ask questions, and we've got about half an hour, uh, can I kick the ball off, uh, as it were, by asking you, in spite of all this um, camaraderie between the Archduke and the royal family, uh, British politicians, you say he met them, he did, obviously uh, Gray didn't understand what he was talking about from your account, but Asquith, when he heard about the assassination of Sarajevo, wrote to his mistress, Venetia Stanley, saying, oh, an archduke's been assassinated in Sarajevo, thank God it's got nothing to do with us. Uh, is this simply because uh, he wasn't interested in the archduke or hadn't met him, or no, was it because... Yeah, he had met him, he said, but was it, is it because... Well, he met him at Windsor, but uh, Venetia Stanley wouldn't have met him. No, no, but... The question is, the, the personality to one side, is this a kind of indication that Great Britain however well they receive royalty, doesn't actually treat Austria-Hungary that seriously in diplomatic affairs? Well, I think, I think it shows that, as other people thought in the Foreign Office, that little will come of this. <coughs> he may just be reassuring Venetia Stanley that it's not going to lead to anything. The Mensorff as well thought that, there wouldn't, that the Foreign Office in Vienna wouldn't react very strongly at first. Uh, a lot of people in the first two weeks think that nothing would come of it. And I think that's all Asquith is saying. As Venetia Stanley had never met him, I suppose, uh, why, did he need, why would he go into detail about, about him? Uh, I, well, according to what Mensal said, uh, the Archduke was very friendly to Asquith as well, I think. Uh, but I say, he only met these people in the last six months of his life, one week, one few days in the shooting party at Windsor. So I can't think they became very close. No, no, I, I didn't mean so much to ask you about the personal relations, but given the Balkan Wars and the history of it, yeah. um, why would the British presume that uh, the assassination of the heir to the throne would have very little consequence? Well, I think, I think that, that was the view of the Austrian Foreign Office generally in, in those months. It hadn't done much. It had given way on every point. There was exasperation growing in Vienna, but this hadn't come to the surface yet comes out in the, in the ultimatum and the firm action. But they're still debating in Vienna what to do about it. Uh, and no way anybody in London could have imagined the sort of ultimatum that appeared uh, nearly a month later. Uh, I don't think the initial reaction, as far as I see, in the immediate days after was it a personal tragedy. But nobody thinks at this stage that it will lead to a war. It's later when, when the terms of the ultimatum are known, and then it becomes clear that if Russia accepts this, she can pack up as a great power and become a satellite of the central powers, that then they realize that the thing is upon them and there's no stopping it. But I think until the 22nd, 23rd or so, there's no indication in England that uh, this is going to lead to a major war. Uh, Gray is still saying that provided the demands of Austria on Serbia are reasonable, uh, we'll support them. And these demands are not known till the 23rd. That's a month after the assassination. So the Asquith should be writing that weekend after the assassination that this is not the end of the world. I think that figures fits in with even people 
think I don't think people did see it in the immediately as uh, leading to more at all. Um, that 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 comes pretty suddenly with the when once the ultimatum is there, then I think people realise this is probably it. There's no way around this. Either Russia will uh, cease to exist as a great power, or there's a are you talking about just of Britain, or do you think that was the feeling elsewhere? I think I don't think there's any indication until that third week of July, that anything serious is being done, because the Austrians were keeping it all quiet. They, they sent these people abroad, on holiday and so on. Um, the Germans promised the Austrians their full support, but they didn't know what Bertolt was going to demand. I don't think uh, until the third week in July that there was uh, serious, uh, people were thinking seriously that this would mean a European war. Okay, so. so questions. Uh, Mr. Norton. Well, um, as you already know, Alan, I'm probably the only person here to have shaken the hand of one of the assassins um, at Sarajevo, uh, Professor Popovich. Um, I was there uh, writing this up in the late 60s. And there he was. Uh, he, he was, in fact, by that time, a, a, an ethnographer. And he was more interested in showing me the, the uh, tombs of the Bogomils uh, than uh, uh, to talk about Sarajevo. Well, what he did do, he took a map that I had of the route along the Apple K and so forth. And this particular map from a book, uh, he said that they'd got the positions of some of the assassins wrong. I must tell everybody uh, that uh, the assassins were mostly under 20. And uh, in Austria-Hungary, you couldn't execute anyone um, uh, um, under 20. So most of them survived. I think three of them probably, or at least two, uh, until the late 60s. But I wanted to ask you, Professor, uh, something else, because you didn't mention it. And it was that in the middle years of the reign of Edward VII, uh, the Prince of Wales and uh, the Princess visited Austria. Yes, there was a state visit. Uh, now, quite interestingly, I've looked at the papers in the Royal Archives uh, which uh, record uh, that particular visit. And though it's said, because it's quoted by Harold Nicholson in his biography of George V, um, that he said, my God, this court is stiff. Um, in point of fact, it seemed not quite to be the case if you look at, the, uh, look at the papers. In particular, what was interesting was that uh, by that time she was the Duchess, I think, uh, of uh, Hohenberg, um, uh, was not, I noticed, at any of the tables for um, the uh, uh, reception. But then uh, it occurred to me that she was heavily pregnant with Ernest, presumably the youngest boy that we saw there. So as she was enceinte, she wouldn't naturally appear at any particular thing. And what is interesting is Queen Mary was a well, then the Princess uh, of Wales, Mary, was a complete hoarder. So she had all sorts of little things uh, there in the file, which is in the Royal Archives. And she actually saw pri uh, uh, in uh, their the suite, I suppose, or um, at uh, uh, the, uh, the, 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 their palace, um, uh, uh, the, um, uh, the Duchess of Hohenberg. So it seems as if this is not quite as stiff and nasty towards the Duchess. Um, at the court. We've, we're all poisoned by uh, Prince Montenuovo, but uh, I'm, I'm not so sure 
uh, you said that in fact possibly royalties in, in Europe would actually uh, uh, recognize us. So uh, there are very interesting points to be raised in this. And thank you very much, and I'm sorry to have talked so long, everybody. No, I think uh, this idea that Martin Mogul was behind it all, other people probably just the same, just acting under orders from facts generally. Mm. And look at that tyranny and incident in 1988. One yeah. can believe that. The visit in 1904, I didn't go into this, I saw the time. Um, what I picked up on that was that Edward wrote a minute about that. That the visit was very successful, the ambassador reported, and the king again writes, this is very satisfactory. But I think the visit to, the, to them privately at the Belvedere was probably George V's own doing. Uh, I don't think it's a court arranged thing. They didn't make things easy at all, but I think the king probably, it seemed with calling the thing hopelessly stiff, but they may have gone outside protocol and said, we're going to see these people. So that you perhaps Ferdinand said he always liked from the visit to Vienna almost. He met him, he met him at San Rigo in the 90s, but I think the visit in 1904 was a success, and they did get to like each other then. And that fits in with what you say. Um, incidentally, we've been in the World Archives, I did send them an email and asked them if they had any photographs of the 1913 visit, and they said not. So if you go back, will you have another look? <laughs> Did, um, did Franz Ferdinand's uh, relations with uh, Franz Joseph ever, imp ever improve? I mean, they always seem to be pretty tetchy. Uh, the emperor watched him pretty closely, and even over a rather... I mean, Franz Ferdinand had a, a seemingly an uncanny ability to upset him, even over the rather minor affair of his determination to uh, uh, get hold of Schloss Blumbach because of its excellent shooting. I think it was leased to a syndicate that was partly, uh, uh, partly English at the time. I mean, the emperor was really uh, very upset with him over, over just about everything. Well, the emperor didn't want him to buy Blumbach. Well, no, uh, Franz Ferdinand wanted to acquire yes. Blumbach, which he did, he did. ultimately. Yeah. But the emperor was upset about it and the way he went about it. Why? Because I, well, I think it was leased to a shooting syndicate at the time, which oh. was partly English. And it meant basically forcing them out. And I mean, he went to extraordinary lengths to get hold of it. He actually, uh, uh, I think he, you know, he had government ministers involved and so on. And it was just, it was a bit of a, a minor scandal. And the emperor was, was pretty upset about that. Uh, the relations did not improve. And the other reports and the British reports. Could you please use the microphone? Sorry. Uh, the, the, there were reports in. Um, in the British archives, how they're having these rows to the end, really, and that to uh, one reporter, often it's tittle-tattle that gets back to the ambassador, that he's apparently Franz Ferdinand was in such a rage that the emperor began to think he was insane and should he remove him from the succession and so on. This is probably all exaggerated in these reports of these rumours, but there is, after all, the story of uh, that once he was assassinated, Franz Joseph was rather worried that he might get rid of the act of renunciation. This was said to be one reason why Franz Ferdinand and his wife cultivated the Pope, because the Pope will be able to free them from this oath. That again is a much court tittle-tattle really. But Franz Joseph is supposed to have said after the assassination that a higher power than I has re re preserved an order that I was unable to maintain, some by removing these people. Uh, no, he did, they did not get on to the end. I don't think they ever got better relations. 
Um, you know, it's interesting what you say about Blumer. Maybe, maybe it's a question of hunting rights. Uh, the emperor thought everything would be shot dead for miles around. <laughs> he got it. Sorry, um, Chris Brennan. Uh, thank you very much for the talk. Um, I, I've been working on Karl and um, uh, Franz Ferdinand's attitude during the, um, the uh, funeral ceremony reminds me a bit of Karl uh, during the coronation of George. And he wasn't a much more enthusiastic guest. In the letters he wrote back, he was complaining about London greyness, English food, etc., uh -huh. etc., too much dancing, too much gaiety generally. Um, and I wanted to ask you just to, to go back to what you said about the renouncing of the renunciation, so to speak. Um, in General von Seck's memoirs, he claims that Karl told him in summer 1916 that he had not expected to come to the throne until Sarajevo because he was absolutely convinced that Franz Ferdinand would seek to cancel uh, the renunciation. And I know there was a lot of tittle-tattle as well as that. Do you lend any credence at all to that possibility that Franz Ferdinand might have sought? Well, I think it's, it's a thing people thought about and talked about and gossiped about. But on the other hand, there's other evidence that Franz Ferdinand was too pious a Catholic ever to renounce a sacred oath. There's no evidence that I've come across that he really was in touch with the Pope about altering it. This was a thing his enemies said. The Duchess of Hohenberg had to put up with a lot of criticism from diplomatic circles who said she was ambitious and putting him up to this and that. Um, it's largely caught tittle-tattle. And I think knowing him, Franz Ferdinand himself certainly denied that he would have anything to do with this. And on the other hand, the same people who accuse him of preparing the way for him and his children to succeed are the same people who accuse him of avarice and hoarding money so that he could give his children a large fortune because they wouldn't get any uh, from the imperial court. Um, there's a lot of tittle-tattle goes about, but I would, I would doubt that, actually, that Franz Ferdinand thought of altering it. Um, so can I just come in there? Yes. Because these renunciation has made an act of the Hungarian parliament, yes. so that would have had to be repealed yeah. by the Hungarians. And yes, well, he was planning a civil war in Hungary anyway. Yes. <laughs> that would probably be scrapped alongside the rest. Oh, uh, um, Richard, is it? Yeah. Um, Richard Bassett. Um, on the point of um, Whitehall knowing about uh, the sort of case that was being framed against Serbia. Um, I think Count Lutzov, whose mother was uh, a Seymour and was English, yeah. um, he goes to see Berchtold on the 6th of July and uh, he says to Berchtold that the idea of a Lokalisierung is ein mm -hmm. reiner's Hirngespinst. Mm -hmm. And I think the following day he invites Sir Maurice de Bunsen for lunch at his country estate where he says to Maurice de Bunsen that uh, this is actually much more serious than you think it is. Mm -hmm. um, and I think de Bunsen sends a telegram which essentially contains details of his yeah. briefing from Count Lutzov to Gray, and it certainly goes to Nicholson. Whether Nicholson passes mm -hmm. it on to Gray, I don't know. But in theory, by the second week of July, the report from Vienna that the, the Austrians are going to actually hmm. resort to quite serious measures should already be at, in Whitehall. Yes, I think that's true, and I've seen that report, and uh, I think it did get to Whitehall, but whether, what the British made of it, with other stuff coming in, saying that, and even Mensdorf says, in the light of what the Foreign Office has been doing lately, I doubt it, it will take much action. I think there are similar comments from the Foreign Office people in London. Um, yes, Lutzow, that Lutzow luncheon was, was reported. Um, 
But there again, it's, it's not Bertrand himself saying it, it's what an ambassador thinks, and all sorts of reports were coming in from all sides about what was likely to happen. Um, so I'm, no, I'm not saying that there was no reports back to London, but I don't think there were signs that the British were taking it seriously till the famous dramatic cabinet meeting when Gray produces the text that Gray knew on the day before the cabinet meeting how serious the ultimatum was. The government certainly didn't know, hadn't taken it on board till the famous cabinet meeting when they're talking about Ireland and Gray then reads out this telegram from Vienna as the most serious event in Europe in our lifetimes and so on. Um, it doesn't really dawn on the decision makers, I think, till quite late. Um, but the, I agree, the Lutzoff report, I did, I have come across that. But it doesn't seem to have made much really registered yeah. Sorry, thank in the Foreign you. Office uh, mind. A lot of people want to ask questions. Can I take them in a bunch then? Starting on this side, this gentleman here, his hand up first. Can we make them brief, please? Yes, um, I've seen a letter by, um, from Queen Mary to um, the family of um, Sir Frederick Milner, who I think was an artist at the time. I think this was written well before the assassination. She expresses great concern about the deteriorating situation in Europe. She's really quite worried in the letter, so that's interesting in connection with what you have said. Professor. We'll have to know the exact date of that letter because there were crises that did waken people up during the Balkan yeah. Wars. And uh, well, actually, I own the letter, but I would have to check it um, again before. It I might coincide with some. Oh, there were Austrian ultimatums yeah, before that. I think it was 1913, but I can't yeah. swear. There are plenty going on. Exactly. Right, can we move on to brief questions, please? Somebody that side up there. There, hand up. Hi. Um, yeah, thinking about the, the priorities here in terms of this declining relationship, um, from the British side, um, uh, um, the, I think probably the, my impression is, well, I don't know if you agree with this, that the, the uh, settlement of 1867 is quite important. I don't think the British kind of quite understand the complexities of Austrian affairs, but they do understand that 1867 has implications, and that um, uh, what what they, what they see in, in Franz Ferdinand is someone who's going to shock, uh, rock, sorry, rock, sorry, the mm -hmm. the the monarchy to its knees. Mm -hmm. And the way they tend to see it is that it's a block against German power, it's a block against Russian power. And really, that this is, would you agree that this is the kind of thing that they're most concerned with at heart? That's how they tend to see him in terms of their interests. Well, they certainly don't want to see the monarchy involved in domestic upheavals so that it can't act as this restraint, as you say, on Germany and Russia. Uh, if it could go on as independent and not fall under German domination, uh, that would be even better. Um, but no, they've no design that comes out in those quotations that they don't want to see a civil war uh, between Austria and Hungary, uh, which the Consul General in Budapest was predicting. Um, Sorry, can we go on to another question? Uh, is anybody on this side? If not, and Mark. Sorry, gentleman in the middle there. Yes, very quick question. I just wanted to know whether Franz Ferdinand had more interest in dynasties which had power and therefore he wouldn't be very interested in the, in the uh, Saxe-Coburg Gothas or the Windsors because he knew they didn't have a lot of power or did that not play any role in his thinking about 
oh. England? Um, well, with regard to the Windsors, I think he does. Uh, he, he does appreciate them. Um, he thinks they're a good thing, definitely. Uh, the Saxe-Coburgs, the problem there is with Ferdinand Saxe-Coburg, the king of Bulgaria, um, he was really uh, one of Franz Ferdinand's bête noire because his first wife, who died young, was a sister of Franz Ferdinand's stepmother. And Franz Ferdinand writes at one point that Ferdinand had killed his first wife and treats the second like a dishwashing woman. Um, and uh, he has this personal hatred of him. But I don't think... Um, no, he, he's very much involved with dynasties that no longer rule. He springs from those people. Uh, no, no, he's a monarchist, and the fact these people are no longer ruling is due to the wickedness of their opponents, not, uh, not that they're not worth cultivating. And I think the, the story of his wanting to restore the Pope is an exaggeration, but it's one that keeps cropping up in the reports. So um, I can stop you there, yeah. we've got a more question. Gentlemen here, gentlemen there, and the gentlemen up there who have their hands up. So if we start with this gentleman here in the front. Don't fight over him, just give him <laughs> one. I only need one. Um, just on a personal note, what kind of emperor do you think he would have made, you personally? Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Should we leave it there and go on to the next question? One gentleman there. David. A difficult person to deal with. May I ask what do you think the attitude of British people more generally than just the closed shop of the government might have been before uh, to, to Franz Ferdinand and after his assassination to Franz Ferdinand? Attitude of ordinary British people, not the government. Um, well, that, that, rather like Asquith wrote to Venetia Stanley that an archduke has been killed somewhere in the Balkans. Um, there's been, Donald Watt has written about this, about the ordinary reaction. Um, the intelligent reading public and so on generally did uh, think it was something significant, I think, but um, people in the know. But the ordinary public, I don't think they were that. They were just a sensation a weekend, maybe, and uh, they certainly didn't follow it through in the next weeks as to what's going to happen about Serbia. Okay, next gentleman up there. Thank you. Um, I um, once gave a lecture after I'd visited uh, Dallas on the assassination of President Kennedy, and mm -hmm. I ended up by saying, well, I've been to Dallas, so I suppose the next stop is Sarajevo, and six months later I was working in Sarajevo, walking regularly across the bridge of the assassination site. Um, my question is, uh, two, two quick sides, what was his relationship with the Chief of Staff, Conrad, because you said... Conrad was dismissed, I think, in 1912. Of course, mm. by 1914, he was back. Yeah, yeah. How significant was the Archduke? Well, about, about Italy, they were agreed. They both hated Italy. In that respect, if Italy was a subject of debate, they would agree. And Franz Ferdinand, in that respect, thought that Conrad had been badly treated. On the other hand, if it's a question of war with Russia, there they were on opposite sides. And Franz Ferdinand says that Conrad is like a high-spirited horse. You can use him in desperate situations, but not to be used in normal circumstances. Uh, he felt Conrad was a firebrand who should be kept under control. And I think if he had become emperor, uh, he would have kept Conrad under control. Um, no, no, on the whole, he did not agree with Conrad because Franz Ferdinand's ideal was somehow to keep relations with Russia on an evil, even keel. I think, would you agree with that, Mark? 
All right. Um, so one. Uh, sorry, just to add to that, when when did the mobilisation start in July? You say that the, the delayed reaction. When, well, when did it really get serious with regards? But after the, after the, the after the, after the receipt of the note, and they bombarded Belgrade, and the, but they said they wouldn't be ready for proper action till 12th of August. Um, they couldn't go ahead properly, but they wanted the military action to start by bombarding Belgrade and so on, so that no other power could intervene with mediation proposals. That's why they declared war as fast as possible, even though they weren't ready to fight it. Okay, the last bunch of questions in the middle. There is a lady and a gentleman there. Could you try and get them both? And these have to be the last questions of the session. Can you press the button? If I'm right, the wife of the Emperor Franz Joseph, I think her nickname was Sissy, was assassinated about that time, which had some influence upon me. Could you just remind me of the details of that and the impact that had on... Well, she was assassinated in 1898 in Switzerland by a lunatic Italian who'd gone there to, to kill a crowned head. He meant to kill the Duke of Orleans. Found he'd left, read in the newspapers that the Empress Elizabeth was staying at the Beau Rivage and waited outside the hotel and just stabbed her. Nothing political about that except Italian hatred of the Habsburg monarchy. And nothing to do with... Uh, Oh, she, was, she, was, she was quite kind to Franz Ferdinand, actually. Um, yes, she did put in a word for him with his uncle on various occasions. Franz Joseph didn't want to let him go on the world cruise. He felt this was too risky. He, after all, might be the heir. But Elizabeth managed to persuade her husband to let him go. She intervened. She was a kind lady and uh, sympathetic human being. And uh, No, no. But her, the murder of Elizabeth had nothing to do with uh, the Slav question. Okay, last question then, lady at the back. Hello, um, it's a question about the photographs. Um, you mentioned there was some antagonism between the press, the British press, um, and the monarchies with the diplomatic, the diplomatic um, processes that were going on. And I was wondering if the photographs were used um, as um, to promote the relations between um, the two monarchies, and whether they or whether they were they archive photographs from the families, or were they used, were they sold to the press to? To um, encourage that those to, to change the, the public opinion in Britain, for example. Which photograph? These. Yes. These are from Austrian sources. Right. Some of them are postcards. They did sell them in Austria. One of them of France and one of his children in The British did not. There's certainly no effort uh, between the two governments to publicise France Ferdinand's visits to England. And uh, as far as I can gather from what I learned from Windsor. No photographs were taken during the visit in November 1913. Maybe from the King's point of view, this was just a private visit and he didn't want press of photographers there. If you'd been the Russians there, uh, the Tsar and his children were uh, mad keen photographers and there would be lots of photographs. But I don't think uh, there's anything to rise from the Windsors or from Franz Ferdinand of that visit. Was, so sorry, was that wonderful Australian cartoon published in the Australian that's, press? I think that's been drawn by a modern artist. Oh, I don't think it reflects <laughs> the views of people 50 years ago. Uh, it was <laughs> very good. Uh, anyway, so on that note... That's on the internet if anybody wants. <laughs> yeah. I, anyways, I thank you once again for a brilliant lecture, bringing an assassinated person back to life, resurrecting him, uh, making him human and uh, giving us a wonderful picture of relations between 
the Royal Heads of Europe in the period before the First World okay. War. Many thanks indeed.